0: Today on Studio 360. The album itself
1: was so different to anything that had come out before.
2: See their
0: the Portishead album, Dummy, still surprising 25 years later. It's not cute. It's intelligent. It's experimental. It's emotional. What was and is so smart about Dummy?
3: Plus? This felt like such a gift to me to see this particular scene.
0: How watching the old movie Night of the Hunter triggered a creative breakthrough for the novelist Karen Russell.
3: Everything had been really resonating, and then suddenly, just structurally, there's this enormous surprise. That's part of our
0: whole hour of noir today on Studio 360, right after this. Studio 360, I'm Kurt Anderson, Anderson. and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken piece. Very well done.
4: Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right?
2: Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson.
4: he's walking calmly down the road with his Tommy gun uh, carrying on this uh, this battle and that's him it's it's telling you about his his character
0: this is carter burwell the film composer who's been scoring for the coen brothers since their very first feature he's describing a memorable scene in their gangster movie miller's crossing where albert finney is Walking down the street wearing this smoking jacket and lounge slippers and shooting a Tommy gun at a moving car as Danny Boy plays.
4: Frank Patterson, who's singing, he came in and sang this for us. He really got into it, and we'd say, "Okay, can you hold that note until the car hits the tree? And then when it explodes, you resolve the note. And he did that he was he was really into following the picture and I will see.
0: Later on in the show, Carter will tell me all about how film soundtracks get made. But first, a story about some film soundtrack obsessives who formed a band in Bristol, England, 25 years ago. They called themselves Portishead, after a nearby town, and they were so fixated on the soundtracks of spy films from the 50s and early 60s, before their time, they made a 10-minute noir film starring themselves. There was no dialogue, but, of course there was a score. In the title card at the beginning of their short, it's on YouTube, the band admits in retrospect that, quote, it had grossly underestimated what it took to make a film. So, yeah, the film was kind of meh and nobody took much notice. But that same year, the band released their debut album, and that was impossible to ignore. In 1994, you practically couldn't walk into a coffee shop or a bar without hearing some of those moody, otherworldly songs. That album was released 25 years ago this week, and it was called Dummy. Dummy.
5: For me, when I think about Dummy, if anything, it's more about color and it's about texture. Very intriguing. It's literally a blue and purple album, but I think that the moods that are kind of associated with that, along with some of the, you know, the black and white noir aesthetic, are really kind of a through line to what is actually invoked by the music. It was moody.
6: It made you feel like I was in some spy novel,
5: some James Bond kind of thing. Cities, cigarettes. Black and white, cinematic, aesthetic.
1: Velvety, cinematic.
5: It's melancholy, it's sadness, it's darkness. Loneliness and exile and loss and separation, grief, estrangement. Goth hip-hop. Shopping carts being smashed into one another.
1: Well, it's always hard to describe music. I'm Delphine Blue, club DJ, radio announcer, radio personality, music curator. 1994 was a great music year. There was Guru's Jazz Mataz, lounge in, lounge in, mellow out and just A lot of MC Solar. Massive Attack. I know that i love before, And how it could be with you Those artists were sort of shaping the sound of what I was playing on the radio. I do remember getting an advance copy of Portishead's album, Dummy. It didn't have the artwork. And the track, oddly, that I connected with first, and I don't know why, was *Mr. Mysterons. <laughs> When an album that you've never heard before grabs you from the first moment, that's always a great sign.
6: Dummy hit just when I was about getting close to getting my sound together, like getting it really there. Porter's Head was right at the cusp of me getting there. My name is Dan Nakamura. They call me Dan the Automator. I'm a record producer. At that time, I was spending a lot of time working on DJ Shadow's first record, and Introducing... The Portishead record was really important to me at the time. It just brought a lot of the elements together that I was trying to do.
5: I was a teenager when Dummy came out and it was one of those formative albums for me. It became a jumping off point for me in how to think about music and how to write about music. My name is RJ Wheaton. I'm a music journalist, and I wrote a book on Portishead's dummy for the 33 and a third series of short books about classic albums. Portishead, in its initial version, was Jeff Barrow, who was the producer. You can hear him on turntables, also contributed some drums. Beth Gibbons, Portishead's vocalist and lyricist, Adrian Utley, guitarist and co producer and Dave McDonald who was a sound engineer who was not a permanent part of the future band he wasn't involved with subsequent albums but had a strong role and influence in the production of Dummy. The way that Dummy was put together was that that original central core of the song was put together in a studio much of it using a production method very similar to hip-hop. One of the characteristics of that period of hip-hop was the extensive use of really complicated sampling. So sampling is taking a moment from another record and usually looping it. one of the things that brought the band's members together was a love of soundtracks, especially 60s, 70s, espionage, thrillers. And so the album has these moments, these motifs, that draw directly from some of those soundtracks and some of those materials.
6: You're supposed to listen to it late at night, or you might want to go put on like a trench coat and run out and like whatever the things spies do now—they stab people with like secret needles or something. I don't know. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I like that sound. One of the things that was crucial to Jeff Barrow was the artifacts of vinyl production—the hisses, the pops, the dust, the crackles, the scratches—would all be really fulsome in the sound. And one of the things that the band would do is actually record original pieces of music. And when they had something they liked, they would press it to vinyl and use that to construct new breakbeats, new loops. It
6: doesn't sound that significant right now because people can just put a file into Serato and scratch it, but it was a real commitment back then. You have to send it out or you have to have someone has a lathe or something like that to do it.
5: And in order to make it sound like an authentic 50s, 60s, 70s record, they would wear the vinyl out they would play it again and again they would scratch back and forth on it and they would try and make it feel aged and authentic but so prominent is some of the vinyl noise people had actually returned their copies of dummy to the record store that they bought them because they thought that there was something wrong with them The vocals and the lyrics were put together quite separately from the underlying music. So Beth Gibbons would receive these treatments for the songs. She would listen to them on headphones, really loud, searching for what the song needs. She described it as fitting, measuring, testing, trying out different lyrics, different melodies. And when she was finished or when she made progress, then the track would be passed back to Jeff Barrow in the studio And he would not really interfere with the lyrics or the melody. Sort of very, very occasionally might suggest a slight melodic change. But what he would do is then readjust the underlying music. And then when they had the song fully together, then she would come in and they would record the vocal. And when they recorded the vocal, they were trying to capture breaths, microphone pops, and trying to make it a really sort of present, intimate vocal recording. Beth Givens is an
6: interesting phenomenon. Where the the her voice is just perfect for this head. It's haunting and it's sharp and you know, cuts right to your bone kind of way
1: I love her. <laughs> I think she's fantastic. I think she really set the tone for a decade of singers to follow. Her lyrics are poof, they cut right through, and that's what you want lyrics to do.
5: Many of the lyrics are elliptical, they hint at themes. They ask questions. Beth Gibbons is sort of moving around questions. They kind of suggest experiences, images, emotional states. It creates this world where, as a listener, you can really feel your own emotional stakes being reflected back to you. How So when Dummy came out, critics found it impossible to describe. There are these phrases like urban cool or disc noir or present-day urban blues that are used to describe the music. You would see sections in record stores called things like down tempo and beats and breaks and chill out, lounge, jazzy beats, blunted beats, things like that. Instrumental hip-hop was reaching a wider audience. So there was actually quite a lot of music that was based on breakbeats that was coming out around this time, some of it with vocals over the top. And this label, Trip Hop, came about to essentially collectively describe it. Trip Hop and Hip Hop are two completely
1: different countries. They have the word hop in them. That's the only... (laughs) And maybe a little bit of a beat, you know, but... No, nothing alike, two totally different animals. Trip-hop is much more moody and trippy, hence the trip moniker at the beginning, I would think. I don't know who coined the phrase, but you know, what I like about trip-hop is that it's trippy, and I like psychedelic music.
6: The difference between trip-hop and hip-hop is trip-hop doesn't exist. It was a category made by critics and writers to try to Categorize something that they didn't quite understand.
5: Because so much of the classic trip-hop template was imitated so quickly and became such a paint-by-numbers exercise, that many of the most creative artists didn't really want anything to do with it.
6: No one who made records that people considered trip-hop at the time would ever consider themselves trip-hop, so that's why I kind of say it doesn't really exist. At this point, there are probably people who do make records and they call it trip-hop, but when you're talking about DJ Shadow for Massive or Portishead. No one was trying to claim that.
5: Nobody wants to be put in a box. Nobody wants to be categorized. One of the paradoxes with Dummy is that it was deliberately recorded to be strange, shocking, and disruptive, and almost avant garde. And yet, Dummy immediately was the album that you would hear in every coffee shop or at every restaurant in the background that album in some ways became a victim of its own creative success. They'd achieved what they aimed to achieve so well that people felt like they could put it on in the background with the volume turned down. For the band, this experience of how Dummy was, was absorbed into the culture, how it was heard, how it was played, and then how quickly it was imitated by other bands was this sort of profoundly alienating experience for them.
1: Bands make music, and then what happens next is out of their control.
6: You can't control your fan base, I guess, or your audience. You can't make music and go, these kind of people are supposed to listen to it, or these kind of people are going to listen to it. It, it just happens.
5: But in spite of how often you could hear it in the background in a coffee shop in the mid-90s, Dummy still retained this power to surprise and to shock and to catch people's attention. Dummy is an album that seems to be very well respected among some of the best hip-hop producers of the last 15-20 years. For many people, if they've had an important experience with this album, it's been because they discovered it themselves and its strangeness spoke to them in a very direct way. Dummy could
1: easily have sounded gimmicking after 25 years. What continues to work for me is partially because the album itself was so different. To anything that had come out before. It really stands on its own and it's not cute. It's intelligent. It's experimental. It's smart. It's beautiful. It's emotional. I, just wanna be a woman. I don't know. Some of those things contribute to why it still works.
6: Dummy has influenced me in a lot of ways. I would say it's pretty close to home, you know, and the whole way they use the music and the strings and and the vocal I can listen to it right now and be pretty happy with where I am you know like musically speaking and technique and production
1: I'm really glad that Portis had made the album dummy it made my time on radio at that moment so fulfilling there are so many great songs on that album the whole thing was just out of this world
0: That was Delphine Blue talking about the Portishead album Dummy, which came out this week in 1994, exactly 25 years ago. We also heard from Dan the Automator and R.J. Wheaton. Jenny Cataldo and BMP Audio produced that story. Now we go from a band inspired by a genre of movie music to a novelist inspired by a particular movie. Hush,
3: my little I did find myself remembering the feeling of sort of a strange, peaceful, buoyant interlude in the midst of a nightmare.
0: The dark 50s thriller that follows the author Karen Russell from book to book. That's next on Studio 360. I write novels and other books, and I've always thought the term writer's block was kind of a misnomer. Writing well is hard, sometimes agonizing, but for working writers, I I think the total paralysis suggested by writer's block is actually pretty rare. But writers do get lost— We can write and write characters and scenes and plot, but still have a feeling of a missing piece, a moment or image that's probably not essential to the story, to the plot, but still important to fully convey some fundamental something we want in this effing book. Karen Russell found herself stranded in this uncomfortable place about a decade ago. She was 27
3: writing her first novel. You know, I was working on a book set kind of in this mythical Florida Everglades that was based on one of the stories in my first collection, Ava Wrestles the Alligator. But I had been struggling with this for quite some time. I did have this young girl, 12, 13 year old sort of tomboy named Ava, who grew up on an alligator wrestling theme park. And she really goes on this true journey to an underworld, basically. It is a, an aqueous kind of a nightmare. And it exists with this other sort of lighter story line. Um, her brother who goes to a hell that's more recognizable where he's just working bad retail. But I was I was right at a moment where I really needed to bring these sibling stories together again. It just felt almost like unwieldy. I had like a couple different worlds um, that I was trying to juggle simultaneously.
0: And then one night, in a break from writing, Russell watched a movie she'd never seen before. One from the 50s about another set of siblings who were also in the middle of a nightmare.
3: The Night of the Hunter is a movie made in 1955. Charles Lawton directed his only film. When it came out, it was a critical and commercial disaster. It's about a preacher who comes into this West Virginia town.
1: Lord, you sure knowed what you was doing when you put me in this very cell at this very
3: time. Robert Mitchum plays the Reverend Harry Powell.
1: A man with $10,000 hid somewhere.
3: We know him at this point to be a con man.
1: And a widow in the
3: making. Who's been in prison and discovered that there is fortune to be had. That the children also know about and seduces a widow.
7: John,
2: mind your manners. Take that look off your face. Act. Shelley
3: Winters plays this widow. Why, you don't mean no impudence, do you? And boy? she has these two young children. Do you, boy? Who seem to be the only ones alert to the kind of evil that's that's oh, rolled what is in. Time
2: poor brother Ben told me about these youngins. What'd he tell you?
3: Why he told me what fine little lambs you and your sister both was. Is that all? Why no, boy? He told me lots and lots of things.
2: Nice things, boy.
3: But there's this scene that was such a complete surprise that opens up in the middle of the film. Everything had been really resonating, and then suddenly, just structurally, there's this enormous surprise.
2: Children! Children!
3: Shelley Winters is no longer with us. She has been murdered. The children still haven't given up the money.
2: Now listen to me, Pearl. You and me is running off tonight. Why? Children. If we stay here, something awful will happen to us. will Daddy Powell take care of us? No. It's just it. No.
3: And they are being pursued by Robert Mitchum's character, the preacher. And they make this escape. I mean, it is like this unbearable suspense right there. It's just really like adrenalized flight from this killer you can still see sort of stalking them at like this nightmare speed. you know, where it doesn't matter how fast you go, the nightmare is pursuing you <laughs> and not you closing the distance. And they make their escape on this raft onto a river. This nightmare just for a minute becomes this very melancholy sort of dream. Pearl, the, the little sister, starts singing a song to John, Pretty Fly.
2: Once upon a time there was a pretty fly. He had a pretty one like a little lullaby. Pretty fly. But one day she flew away,
3: flew away. It's a totally stylized set. There's stars. The water is the only thing that looks sort of completely real. There's a spiderweb in the corner of the shot and you have this aerial view of John sleeping in the front of the boat while Pearl's sort of stroking her doll's hair. And there's just coruscating moonlight covering everything. Now you're looking from the vantage of a bullfrog at these children. He's foregrounded and they're sort of the background. And now they're both sleeping in the boat. And there's just a lot of just phosphorescent cattails <laughs> and just luminous darkness. It's really a strange kind of palette. This felt like such a gift to me to see this particular scene. It was so liberating to me to see it's possible to write. You know, a script like this that feels absolutely suspenseful and blood-red, where the stakes couldn't be more apocalyptic in some sense. And it's still going to contain inside it this little Eden bubble of childhood. You know, whatever things become in children's memory, that's your kid Eden. It's got that unreal tinge on it a little bit. I hadn't included that Eden bubble. You didn't really see what this place was like to these kids, you know, they've recently lost their mother to cancer. And so you're sort of watching this cue ball break of grief where every family member kind of goes into their own private pocket. They're deeply, massively in debt. You know, you sort of watch this park in decline and this family's falling apart and this little Eden bubble of childhood. That was something that I wrote after I saw Night of the Hunter.
2: Four times a week, our mother climbed the ladder above the gator pit in a green two-piece bathing suit and stood on the ends of the diving board, breathing. If it was windy, her long hair flew around her face, but the rest of her stayed motionless. Somewhere below Halola Big Tree, dozens of alligators pushed their icicle overbites and the awesome diamonds of their heads through over 300,000 gallons of filtered water. The chief cued up the music. Trumpets tooted from our old-fashioned speakers, and the huge, unseeing eye of the follow spot twisted through the palm fronds until it found Halola. Just like that, she ceased to be our mother. Fame settled on her like a film. Her shoulder blades pinched back like wings before she dove.
3: This movie has really followed me from book to book. And in this new collection Orange World, one of the stories that surprised me was kind of this return to Florida. This story is set in a drowned South Florida and I was really thinking about Night of the Hunter, the siblings on this aqueous journey together. But the central metaphor in this story is that these four sisters have evolved and they're able to echolocate. So they, you know, they're singing the way that like a gondolier in Venice would sing, but their song is sort of bouncing off the submerged ruins and returning a map to their bodies. And it's sort of a shared map, um, which sounded just strangely close, actually, as I just think it literalizes something siblings do, in fact, all the time when they're navigating their shared history,
7: you know. We call ourselves the Gondoliers. Four singing sisters polling the canals of New Florida. There are other boats on the water, but only my sisters and I take passengers through Old City. According to Vi, when her mother was alive, people would count four sisters seated behind her on the long skiff and reliably say, trying for the boy? As a matter of fact, she'd snap, God has blessed me with daughters. If I could, I'd make 100 more. My sisters tell this story all the goddamn time, so often that it feels like my memory. She drowned when I was three years old, before the cameras in my mind turned on. I think that
3: also felt in line with Pearl and John, right? Who are, I mean, she's singing their way down the river and it sort of feels both like we're braided to their past as children and we understand that we're moving irreversibly into this new phase where they're going to be adults together and they're going to have to Scaffold this very terrible past and find
7: their way through some total unknown that's coming. I stare up at a busy construction pit. Tiny white spades are tossing huge quantities of darkness around. Stars. These are the stars. I'm not sure how long I drift like this, trying not to think about the terrible splashing. Without my pole, I'm in bad trouble. But I screamed for so long that I must have blasted all feeling from my body. And it hardly seems to matter that no boats will find me in this distant bay. When I hear a woman's voice rising out of the darkness, I think, it must be my imagination. My light swings in the direction of her singing. A gondola is arrowing toward me, flat-bottomed and opal-white in the powerful beam of my lantern. My good feeling immediately flips into horror. A gondolier stands on the platform, her hair blowing loose. The pitch of her singing rises. Can this be possible? Am I about to run into my doppelganger? My double pulling out of the past or the future? But it's not my double that draws into view. It's my sister.
3: I don't know that it's it's the most obvious kind of touchstone for... The story that is called the Gondoliers, but I I did find myself remembering the feeling of sort of a strange, peaceful, buoyant interlude in the midst of a nightmare. I think that absolutely exists inside this story too, and I'm sure I owe a great debt to Night of the Hunter.
0: Erin Russell's novel Swamplandia was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2012. Her latest collection of short stories, Orange World, is out right now. Excerpts of Swamplandia were read for us by Morgan Flannery and Mary Wilson read from the short story The Gondoliers. Our radio story was produced by Studio 360's Lauren Hanson. Is there some old movie or video game or concerto or beautiful poster that changed the way you see the world or even the course of your life? That is what we call your aha moment. And if you've had one, please write about it briefly in an email or voice memo and send that to incoming at studio360.org. Coming up next...
4: Temp music, spotting. spotting, source music, streamers and punches, Mickey mousing.
0: The A-list film composer Carter Burwell explains the lingo of his trade. That's next on Studio 360. Studio
7: 360.
0: Earlier in this show, you heard about Portishead, a band whose members were brought together by their love of noir film soundtracks. But that train ran in the other direction for Carter Burwell. I'd known him in college as a fellow member of the Harvard Lampoon staff, but after college, in the early 80s, he was playing in bands. And a friend asked if he wanted to take a stab at writing music for a super low-budget noir film. It was a first feature film called Blood Simple, and it was by a couple of fellow young nobodies named Joel and Ethan Cohen. Turns out Carter Burwell had a knack for scoring films, and he's done the music for most of the Cohen brothers, as well as movies directed by Todd Haynes, Charlie Kaufman, Spike Jones, and many others. So, I asked him to come in and walk me through the lingo of movie soundtracks for a series we call Terms of Art. The first thing I asked, what is temp music?
4: It sends shivers up my spine when you say it. Uh, uh, it's yeah, the it a, a bane of my existence, and, and I, I'll explain what it is. When a director and an editor are editing the film... It's not uncommon for the editor to want to put some music in there just so that when they show the scene to the director, you're feeling something, something's happening. So it is done all the time. Uh, Virtually every film you've seen has had temp music put into it. You as the audience member probably don't know what it was. Although if you actually thought hard about it, maybe you would know. Because the next step is they they bring in a composer and play the movie for him with that temp music in there. They've been living with that temp music for a couple of months. Right. And they suddenly be, it's the music. It's the music.
0: It's like writing a novel and saying, and this character is going to be played by Jack Nicholson, this one by Ryan Gosling. So do go crazy with whatever you want to make them like,
4: right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly.
0: Um, and when you're watching a film uh, that you had nothing to do with, can you say, oh, I see how this went? Can yeah, you well. reverse engineer as you're watching
4: yeah, unfortunately you can. And I think that if now that now that the listeners know about temp music, you go back and listen to a lot of film scores, you might begin to say, Oh, I can imagine what they put in here for temp. I can imagine what they put in here for temp. And I you know, it does result in lawsuits. I know Danny Elfman told me once that one year Vanity Fair is doing their their Oscar issue where they put all the composers together. They do a, a layout for each craft and the composers would not all agree to be in the room at the same time because they had all sued each other. That's Every one funny. of them had sued some, someone and, and, else in the room. And, I'm
0: sure, and, again, Danny Elfman, great big composer of television and film uh, scores. Um, do, do directors ever, as they must, I guess, like, oh, the temp was so perfect. Do they ever say, like,
4: and it is perfect, and that's what I'm going to use. Sorry. <laughs> well, I like it when they do that, actually. I, I prefer... If you're going to try to make me sound like something else because you think that the other thing is perfect, you should just go ahead and license that other thing. So 2001, A Space Odyssey is a famous
0: example. And the opening notes of the film, which people now know as 2001 theme, I guess, of course, (laughs) is, is a piece by Richard Strauss from 70 years earlier. One of the most awesome cinematic musical experiences of my young life in 1968. So I, I never knew uh, that there was a
4: score, right? There was a score. That's right. Alex North had been hired uh, as a composer. I think he had done Spartacus. and For um, Kubrick. For Kubrick. And uh, these classical pieces had been put in as temp music. You know, a, a little bit frightening probably to face as a composer. But Alex North did face it and he went ahead and he wrote a score. And he's a great composer. Right. As I understand it, somehow it skipped Kubrick's mind to tell him that they had never actually put the score in and had went that they had in in the end just gone with the temp music. And it wasn't until Alex North saw the film.
0: Oh, well, here's uh, here is the opening of his score uh, for that same scene uh, in 2001: A Space Odyssey. Which, hearing that, I, I'm thinking, whoa, 10 years later, John Williams, Star Wars. Yeah, well, no, that's right. So, the next term of art we want to talk about is spotting. What is spotting?
4: So, spotting is the first sort of official step in a composer working on a film. It's where the composer sits with the director, usually the film editor too, and we go through the film, stop and start from the beginning, saying, okay, there should be music here. It starts here, it ends there. And that's our first chance to say, what is the intention of the music? What what am I going to bring to this film?
0: Do the directors say, oh, like, a little bit of the Schoenberg here or a little bit of, you know, Prince here. Is that how the conversation goes?
4: There are definitely directors uh, who are capable of doing that, maybe who do that. Yeah. But I have to say, if I sense that a director knows what they want, that makes the whole project less interesting to me. And right. I, I you know, I don't really want to right. do that. I don't want to do a project where the director says, okay, we, you can see what this is. Let's just do it.
0: Do you, all things being equal, would you rather have a director who is musically
4: knowledgeable or like just not? Well... I have dealt with directors who well, I'll say Michael Mann, he's known for, you know, being the guy who tells you how the how the buttons should be stitched on the costumes. And I, I went through a film with him once and he's and he literally said to me, We're watching a scene, he says, I think strings, A minor, D minor. <laughs> wow. But we didn't I knew that if he's doing that then at the spotting session, we were not gonna be able to survive each other. It was not gonna be a yeah. pretty picture. The next uh, term,
0: I suppose, would come up, might come up when you're spotting. Is that is that how we say it? You're that's spotting right. with the director? We're spotting. Uh, is ironic scoring, which is a phrase I'd never heard of, and I love uh, that idea that that's a term. So a uh, director asks you to score
4: a scene ironically?
0: Is that how it happens?
4: It is a thing that can come up at the spotting. Uh, take any any film. Take uh, Being John Malkovich. Uh, the Spike Jones movie that you also composed. Which I also composed. We began to gravitate towards the idea that, well, the the most disturbing thing, the most uncomfortable thing for the audience would be if we took the story seriously and you actually believed it was possible to go into someone else's brain.
1: But Dr. Lester.
4: I am not Dr. Lester. I am Captain Merton. Take these characters that could be kind of cartoony and make them real.
2: I don't understand. It was 90 years ago that I discovered a strange portal and I found that this portal led
0: to a vessel body and that I could live forever by leaping from vessel to
4: vessel. You could feel the emotions that were right. involved, and that would be the most uncomfortable and disturbing aspect of the story. So that's, you might say it's ironic. But it's I'm counterpuntal. Not playing, but it's, ca- it's, a, yeah. it's counterpuntal to, to what you're seeing. Yeah. It is, for me, honestly, the way that I see the world, to be honest. So it is often my first reaction yes. to a film is to say, OK, what am I not seeing? Right, right.
0: It's my head, Schwartz. It's my head.
4: Source music. What is source music? Well, source music is uh, is music that appears in a film coming from a source on the screen. So a radio, a record player, that's called source music in the... More academic world it's called diegetic music because it's coming from the diegesis it, uh, it issues from the diegesis of the story Yeah, <laughs> but that's definitely one more syllable than you'll hear in Hollywood <laughs> yes. uh, so typically in Hollywood you distinguish the source music from the score and they're distinguished in terms of the function they serve in story because Source music is often chosen by the people on the screen. Someone puts on a record. so right. t- That's telling you that person's choice. Whereas what I write is, uh, first of all, is coming from... Where you know no one knows. The ether. <laughs> yeah, that's right. God. And it's there more to manipulate the audience. It's uh, it might it can sometimes be telling you something about the character, but it's a different type of thing. I, I'm interested when they blur uh, sometimes in films, and I'm going to
0: play the film you composed, a scene from Miller's Crossing by Joel Ethan Cohen. So two gangsters show up uh, at the house of the character played by Albert Finney, and he's trying to relax and listening to Danny Boy on his record player. So we see the record on the old-fashioned phonograph. He's chilling in bed. And so this is source music because he's playing the record. Of that's right.
4: We see the record. They enter. They fire.
0: The Albert Finney gangster kills one, jumps out of his house. Burnout burning house. So, So we're not in his room anymore. Right. And but the music is, is going
4: on. That's correct. When we first heard it, you know, you heard the scratches in the record. It was treated, but once we're out of that room, now the music is full. It's coming from all the speakers in the theater. And it's being treated as score now. Well, a mix, really. Scores, uh, yeah. we sometimes say. Oh, really? Yes.
0: Oh, there's a new term of about-
4: <laughs> As he walks outside now with his Tommy gun, he kind of carries the song with him it's 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 now it's him it's, right. it's albert finney he put the record on and he just brings it with him and it tells you something about him it's the song as you you know hear. it's very relaxed the tempo is down although the shooting is going on the music isn't pumping things up because he's very relaxed he's walking calmly down the road with his tommy gun uh, carrying on this uh, this battle and that's him it's it's telling you about his his character We had um, Frank Patterson who's singing. He came in and sang this for us. He really got into it, and we'd say, "Okay, can you hold that note until the car hits the tree?" And then when it explodes, you resolve the note. And he did that. He was he was really into following the picture. And um, but yes, that's that's a place where a piece of source has now become a piece of score. But I think for uh, for pretty good reasons, because it's yeah. about Albert Finney's character, really, yeah. in the end.
0: So, you've spotted a movie with the director, you've written the music, dealt with the sourcing and the scorcing, you're not done Um What are streamers and punches? A a phrase I've definitely never heard.
4: (laughs) Well, it really goes back uh, to the history of how films used to be scored. conductor would stand in front of an orchestra in a recording studio. orchestra's looking at the conductor. Behind them is a huge screen, and the film is being projected on that screen. And the conductor has to conduct the music so it stays in sync with the picture. And a lot of times there are specific beats you have to hit. I have to be at this bar at this moment. I have to be at this bar right. at this moment. So the way that was achieved was they would uh, take a crayon and, and draw a line across the, the film going right. from one side to the other. And when it the way that it appears on screen is as a line moving from left to right, streaming across the, the screen and telling you that when, by the time that line gets to the right side, I've got to be at bar 31. And you know, uh, So that's a streamer. Punches um, were a way of giving the conductor some metronome information basically it'd be just they'd actually take a punch you know, like you'd punch paper with uh-huh. and punch a hole in the oh. film like where every beat was or maybe where every bar was so he would see this white dot and he would know if he were had to speed up a little the conductor would know if he was in time to meet his obligations to the picture basically. and
0: and do you conduct when you, after you compose your composers i
4: conduct uh yeah all my sessions wow. that's the fun part of i would job. think the most fun it's the most fun, yeah. And,
0: and, and are you, is it like we've seen in the movies about movies? Is the movie, like, screening in front of you?
4: Well, it's, these days, it's screening in front of me, but on a tiny screen. Right. I'm sorry, they don't really do it that because way it's anymore. it's these days. <laughs> it's these days. So, it is a big kick. You know, I, I, I spend 95% of my life by myself in a room. Yeah. That's what I do as a composer. But for that, those few days when we're recording, it's... Uh, you it's put on an ascot exciting. and tails. <laughs> exactly. And uh, and, an, and an imperious tone. And <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, that's right. So as
0: you're syncing the, the movie with the music, that can be done very tightly where every bit of action, and then it can be more freely flowing, that's just a stylistic choice of the director and you? It is. And when music is too synced up, there's a term for that?
4: Well, yes. If <laughs> there is, it's called Mickey Mousing. If the music you know, hits, there's a beat for every visual beat, you know, that's called Mickey Mousing. It goes back to uh, those early uh, Disney animations where as the characters bounce up and down and the, the washing machine bounces up and down and the trees bounce up and down in t- time with the music, everything's moving always in sync. And we can even see, as we listen
0: to this, we see Mickey walking.
4: <laughs> That's right, exactly.
0: Are you ever accused of being a Mickey mousing?
4: <laughs> I don't think I've been accused yeah. of being of Mickey mousing, no. I. But there are a lot of film styles, types of films, that do require that. Right. There are you know, action films where whenever some something crashes into something else, or you know, of course there's a beat of music there. And I'm happy to say those aren't the types of films I typically work on, right. but... You know, I don't know, There may be some, maybe in the animation world they use the term Mickey Mousing as a, as a more affectionate term, but when I hear <laughs> it, it's usually a pejorative, I have to say. Okay. Yeah.
0: Carter Burwell, uh, this is fascinating, and uh, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Carter. That conversation with Carter Burwell in 2017, because it was just the two of us, it's what we in professional radio broadcasting call a two-way. When there are two interviewees, we call it a three-way. And our professionalism notwithstanding, we silently snicker at that every time. So what are the special terms of art that you use while you're applying your trade as a mural painter or in your special effects studio or balloon art business? Let us know in an email that you send to incoming at studio360.org. And that's just about it for this week's show, but before we go, I want to remind you to make sure you subscribe to our podcast at Apple or Stitcher or wherever. As a subscriber this week, for instance, you can hear a conversation I had with the best-selling mystery writer, Laura Lipman, who toured me around her hometown, Baltimore.
1: Baltimore is a good noir town. I would definitely say that. My definition of noir has always been it's a story where dreamers become schemers and that you have ordinary people who cross lines that the rest of us don't cross because they want things that everybody wants. They want love, they want money, they want career advancement. Only they get to a point where they're like, well, if I'm going to have that, I guess I have to kill somebody.
0: That's Laura Lipman, whose new novel is called Lady in the Lake. Speaking of internet activities, you can also tweet us at Studio360Show. Like Robin Kassler did, who tweeted, The Leonard Cohen segment was magnificent. Listened while picking blueberries in the backyard, which made perfect sense. Thank you, Robin. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our production team
2: is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders.
6: Tommy Bazarian.
2: Morgan Flannery.
3: And I'm Kurt Anderson. We know him at this point to be a con man. Thank you very much for listening.
5: PRI Public Radio International.
1: Such spoiled girls you are. Such spoiled brats.
0: And Dowd, who plays Aunt Lydia in The Handmaid's Tale, on playing terrifying people. My husband said, don't you want to play someone who's, like, nice? A whole hour inspired by The Handmaid's Tale and its upcoming sequel, The Testaments.
1: I love going to the lower depths. That's a ticket to heaven.
0: Next time on Studio 360.